On the night that Jesus was betrayed, his heart was heavy. He shared a Passover meal with his closest followers, and he had a lot to tell them before he would be seized and before they would scatter. But it is in Jesus's prayer to his father in John 17 that we see the most intimate thoughts in his heart as he faced down the death of the cross. Jesus prayed for the sake of his apostles who would shortly bear witness to the risen Christ and shepherd his church. But they weren't the only ones that he prayed for. In verse 20, Jesus said, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they all may be one as you father are in me and i in you that they also may be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me the prayer of our lord was one for unity among those who would believe on him including those of us who call him lord today a unity based on the unbreakable bond of the trinity itself a unity that serves as a proof within itself of the truth of the gospel but unity doesn't come easily when people come together, even in the name of Jesus, they come from disparate backgrounds and various contexts. And so it's no wonder then that two well-meaning brothers can come to the same subject and land on different sides of an issue. How do we address the differences of opinion and practice that exist within the borders of Christ's church? And can we do it while answering Jesus's prayer for unity? Welcome to Who Let the Dogma Out, where doctrine has dominion over all of life. I'm one of your co-hosts, Titus Anderson, joined today, as always, by Jack Wilkie and Daniel Mayfield. Uh, guys, as we wade into the realm of opinion on this week's episode, uh, what are some unpopular opinions that you guys hold? I'll, I'll go first. Uh, I, I was born and raised a picky eater, um, and as I've grown you know out of that and and gotten older i've really embraced a lot of different food groups but one food that that people around me just rave about uh making an ingredient you know just eating it is cream cheese i hate cream cheese uh if cream cheese is in a dish uh if you if i if someone like gets a wild hair to put it in a casserole or in some kind of mexican dish i i can just almost smell it in the room like i can i can cheesecake? taste it over well, see, desserts, dessert is the one place where if you put it in a dessert and there's lots of sugar and other stuff, then sometimes that tang doesn't get me so much. But if it's in a savory dish, like I, I'm right on top of it. And I'm like, this has cream cheese in it. I can't eat it. I'm sorry. Man, you're missing some good stuff there. It's, uh, that's a tough way to go through life. I don't eat a lot of it, but uh, there are there's some <laughs> great dishes with it in there. in and out Burger and Chick-fil-A. Are terrible oh no no oh, oh wow we are. did it <laughs> this is a lines of fellowship issue right there so oh, we're gonna man. have daniel it, sign it off clearly and... is i wayne roberts i don't know that that guy he's he's like the chef whatever of the church and he anytime i mention anything about it it's like he jumps on that harder than i've seen him jump on anything on any biblical issue <laughs> he jumps harder on the in and out things so like okay well I guess it is a fellowship issue. It is, man. It's it's just too good. Um, okay, so let's see. I'm I'm known as the anti pumpkin guy. Like that's my brand. Everybody knows it. And <laughs> usually people spend all fall linking me and tagging me in pumpkin recipes on on Facebook. And so uh, that one, 
Yeah. So if, uh, if we're doing hot food takes that uh, pumpkin is terrible, pumpkin spice latte should all be thrown in the trash, uh, mm-hmm. all that. So uh, I, I don't know if that's as disfellowshipable as uh, Chick-fil-A and In-N-Out are bad, but, you know, yeah. it makes yeah. makes some uh, draw some lines, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I've never never had in and out. Hope to have it uh, one day. But the Chick Fil A no, take, man. No, that's, people talk it up for forever. They're like, they're like, Dan, this is gonna be the greatest thing. I go to California and I eat it. I'm like, this is not. I make a burger way better at home. <laughs> like, I like my burger way better at home. And and it's like you. Maybe it was all the hype. Maybe if I'd just gone in there and just eaten it, I'd been like, oh, this is a fine fast food burger. But they made it seem like this is the pinnacle. You're you're about to eat the greatest <laughs> burger you've ever eaten. And so All I went right, in we'll, and, we'll and help Titus there. Titus, they're terrible. Through. So when you get to try one, just keep your expectations low. <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, Sounds good. All right. So matters of opinion and and fellowship and division and unity uh, is is what we've got to talk about. Uh, it's a great intro there by Titus because unity is so important. I, I think it's one of those things that does not get talked about a lot. And, you know, it's like, yeah, we're supposed to be united and then we move on. But it's like, no, 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 no. Come back to this and look how big of a deal this was throughout the New Testament. And breaking unity when you shouldn't break unity is one is something God takes way more seriously than, than we do. And, and really is if you're going to rank things that, that should not happen in the church, it is arbitrary breaking of unity. And so, uh, that, that being our topic, Titus, get us into kind of where unity starts, I guess. Sure. So when we think about the unity of the church, one thing that I think is helpful to kind of say from the outset is that uh, unity, again, as you said, which is so hammered on in the New Testament, uh, is difficult. Unity's hard. <laughs> if it were easy, it seems it wouldn't be addressed so much. You know, being told, be united, be of one mind, speak the same thing, um, you know, be as one in, in Christ. And we know that the Bible also, in certain cases, demands division. Uh, I think about in 1 Corinthians, the man who um, had his father's wife. And at that point, they were told, hey, this person, for the salvation of their soul, you need to divide from them. They need to be put out. And so I don't want to paint this as, as a one-dimensional topic, but as a whole, I would say unity is difficult and division is easy. It's easy to divide based on opinion. It's easy to just kind of say, they're over there, I'm over here. And so if we're thinking about the foundation of unity, where does our unity come from? I think we have to go again back to the foundation of what it means to be a Christian. Um, one of those foundations, again, maybe the foundation would be the gospel. So if we're talking about, you know, what makes me a Christian? Um, well, the first thing that makes me a Christian is that God saved me. Jesus saved me through his blood, through his sacrifice. And, and so as we you know, examine the, the scope, again, of brothers within the church that we might have various disagreements with, we have to at least go back to and say, even if I disagree with someone, if they are indeed in Christ, um, then that's the greatest form of unity we can have. That, that bond that we have um, just kind of by default for those that are all partakers in Jesus Um has to be that bedrock foundational unity. And I think, again, that's something that within the church, we don't lend enough credence to, that that unity is a real uh, definable quality. It's a real trait. It's a real aspect of what it means to be in the church. And that's something that, again, 
Uh, if we are in fellowship with God, we can't sever that unity. It just exists and is a blessing to us in that way. Sorry, Daniel, I, I was getting a drink there, but I'm just, I'm uh, just listening in here. I'm, I'm, I'm gathering my own thoughts. Of course, I, I, uh, I agree with you. Our, our foundation of our unity is the blood of Jesus Christ. And, you know, we can, we, we, Look over at you kind of get a general basis of this in Ephesians chapter four, you know, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all um, one hope, you know, whatever the seven ones are that he gives there. I think that's a good that's a good starting point. And um, then it starts getting kind of messy when we start going out from there Um, here on the, you know, uh, outline. We've got some potential problems, unity by theological titus do you want to speak a little bit to what you mean by that sure so you know as, as you think about problems that come because i think we can on one hand we can say well <laughs> unity is important we should be united we're united in the gospel we're united in these uh ones of ephesians chapter four the the things that again there's only one <laughs> there's only one body there's only one baptism there's only one lord in that if we have this lord then we share him but the potential problems come and we say okay well we must have unity now how do we get unity and i think there's a couple of bad ways to have unity one of the bad ways to have unity is is unity by theological minimism which again you know hit the hit the bell we've used the term again in this episode um if our unity is founded on the idea that we believe so little that anybody can get along with us and unite with us you know there's just this list of two or three things and that's all that's really important if that's the kind of unity that we have we are going to be maybe an incredibly large body united but we're going to be united in, in essentially for no real reason. There's nothing that's that's really foundationally going on there. And on the other side, I think you have the danger of unity by exclusion, right? Almost unity by division, which is, hey, you know, I here's what I believe, and you believe exactly like me. We have no differences of opinion. So we're just going to build the fence around us and we have unity and everybody else is outside of it. And so again, what you what comes to is you call it unity, but in reality, the way that you've you've gotten that unity is you've cut off every person that could have any potential disagreement with you. And I just think again, it's a very unhealthy mindset to have. Yeah, the fence thing is is such a great illustration because it goes in both directions. And you, the theological minimalism thing you bring up is kind of there's almost this this idea to build the fence outside of people who might not even want to be inside of it. But like, we're just going to include as many people as possible. The fence is going to be so far off that the sheep can't even see it. And and everybody and everything fits inside of it. Well, that means sheep fit inside of it and wolves fit inside of it and and everything else. And and there has to be good fence building and building it where where God builds it. But as you say, the exclusionary thing where you build it around two sheep, what's the point? And, and so there very much is a give and take here that is difficult. And there's. Uh, a joke I, I referenced in an article the other day that uh, is, it's a classic of this guy. Uh, he's on a bridge and he's just in despair, kind of the it's a wonderful life thing. Like, I'm I'm just going to throw it all away. It's it's over. I've got nothing to live for. And somebody comes up and says, wait, wait, don't you believe in God? And he says, yeah, I'm, I'm a theist. He says, OK, which, you know, you Christian, Muslim, you know, Jewish. What are you? So I'm Christian. Oh, I am, too. That's cool. 
uh, well, what, you know, are you Protestant or Catholic? Well, I'm Protestant. Okay. Are you, you know, which one Baptist? Me too. Me too. All the way down the line, Southern Baptist or, you know, independent Baptist, Southern Baptist. And then this one, and this book of confession or this one or this one. And there's like 12 layers of it. And he gets to the end and they finally disagree on something. And he goes, die heretic and pushes the guy off the bridge. You know? <laughs> and, and there's, there's a real lesson in that of like drawing that fence too tight. But on the other hand, there is a line somewhere in there. One of those things in the list, you go back and go, okay, well, we can't disagree on this anymore. You know, uh, there's obviously the Jewish Muslim Christian thing. And there, there are Christians that want to open those doors and say, well, we're all God's children. We're all God's people. Father, you know, the fatherhood of Abraham, we're all under him. And, and that's okay. No, it's not actually. We've got to dial it down a little bit from there, but then how far do you dial it down? And you get to that point of, well, I'm a Christian, I'm Protestant ish you know however we define ourselves i'm church of christ i'm conservative church of christ i'm you know non-instrumental and you just add to the list and then you get to the point of you know i'm non-sunday school church of christ and anybody who's not die heretic kind of thing right there i heard somebody um some prominent name not so long ago um and he was mentioning you know he he, he made mention that there's like 10 last remaining faithful churches in the, in the United States. And he, he, like he, he gave, he's got a list and it's, it's these, it's these couple of them. And that's, that's need that list, man. I want to be saved. I I wasn't, I wasn't on it and neither were you guys. So I'm, I'm sorry to say, but you're out. You are, you're going to be, you're going to be in judgment. Um, One of the, one of, you know, this is inherently difficult to parse out. Honestly, if we're going to, a little bit later in the show, we're going to get into some particulars, you know, on on just traditional matters of of opinion, food, drink, holidays, whatever. We'll, we'll get into that. But one of the things that I want to say at the outset that I've I've kind of settled on is <clears throat> I have my my understanding of proper doctrine and what I believe is the right way to worship and what the church is to look like, how it's to be organized, all these things. And wherever I have influence, wherever I have the ability to preach and teach, I'm going to be bringing these things, and I'm going to uh, administer these truths. And I'm I, if I have influence somewhere, that's what I'm going to be doing. Now, I can see outside of my realm others who are not within that same thing. Where I've settled is I'm I'm not making it my primary ambition to address everybody and to condemn every other person to hell. That's that's not my place. That's not my God hasn't given me that job. He's going to sort that out. And so I'm comfortable on, enough knowing that I I would be I'd be willing to tell somebody I think you're wrong here. And um and here's why I think you're wrong and here's what I believe the Bible teaches. And I think we need to be enforcing biblical truth the best that we possibly can. But at the same time, we need to be praying for the grace of those who are not exactly in the realm of what we think on, on this or that issue. We need to like, I feel like we, we get this callous. Um, oh, that person, you know, disagrees with me here. And therefore they're a wolf in sheep's clothing. It's like, no, they, they may be misguided. They may be misunderstood. And I'm also leaving open the possibility that maybe I'm misunderstood. Mm-hmm. I mean, there I'm always carrying with me the possibility that I could be conceiving of something wrong so mm-hmm. I, to me, it goes back to by the standard of measurement that you judge somebody else, you're going to be judged by that standard, right? Mm-hmm. So as I'm as I'm thinking about, you know, I, I understand this is this is a tricky subject, 
But as I'm thinking about unity and what that means ultimately, I think it means I'm going to try and find unity in those who see doctrine and theology the way that I do. And yet anybody that's on the outside of it, I'm not going to immediately in my mind say they're absolutely assuredly 100% going to hell. I, I, I don't know if that's like a false fence or, um, or how exactly to work through that. But my fear is that when we make this fence so small and we, and so narrow, and we're judging every other person on that basis, God's going to judge. If, if our, if our basis of judgment is absolute perfect theology and perfect understanding in every way, not a single one of us is going to come out on the other side uh, as faithful before God. Uh, we can't be judged by that standard and come through safely on the other side because we're probably getting something wrong. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And that's that's helpful. What you just said there is helpful to remember that no one uh, is going to go to heaven because they are extremely talented at precision obedience. No one is going to be saved by precision obedience. Uh, That's not to say obedience is unimportant. Obviously, obedience is extremely important. Obviously, God requires obedience. Obviously, that means that certain lines have to be drawn on what is and isn't obedience. But at the same time, even those of us that that fancy ourselves to be extremely obedient will not go to heaven because of our precision obedience. We will go to heaven because of the grace of God. And so, again, I think you're exactly right. And, and the problem that I think I find, and maybe we can speak to this a little bit more at the end of the episode, is we are so worried about the danger of fellowshipping somebody or being united with someone who isn't exactly right. But we never really pause to think about the danger of cutting off someone that God considers to be a faithful Christian. And to me, that is a real danger as well. I, I don't want to be guilty of either one. I don't want to be guilty of, of shepherding in someone who is outside the fold, but nor do I want to cut off someone who's inside the fold. So really, I, I think, you know, as we kind of move forward, I think there's two gatekeeping questions before we get to the text that we're going to look at. And basically, you have to get past the first question to even get to the second question. The first question is, is there room for unity in differing opinions? And as you just said, you would hope, uh, but due to humility, due to the fact that we all need God, God's grace, that there is room for unity, even among people that see things differently and differ. But once we get past that, because I think as we're going to look at Romans 14, we're going to see you have to say that there is. You have to say that we're called the unity, even among differing opinions. Then the question is going to be, and the much harder question is, what kind of opinions are we talking about? I've heard um, exegesis of Romans 14 that essentially comes down to, yes, we can have different opinions, and that's why uh, this church has this color wallpaper, and this church has this color wallpaper, and that's why and, this church has, yeah. But, well, the funny, I mean, the funny, <laughs> it's a, it's hilarious because I've heard that same thing. You know, unity comes down to, well, yes, we can have our differences. You like this color. You like this color. You want this kind of flooring. I want this kind of flooring or whatever. But those are the issues that have that have split churches here in the South. So we don't even think that that's an acceptable difference in opinion. <laughs> right? right? Yeah. How many churches do we know that or have we heard of? Or, you know, you, you're you in this little bitty small town and it's like, oh, my gosh, we've we've split over so many things. Clearly, we've we've missed the mark. And I think we've gone we've gone too far on on this second question, and we've not we've not allowed for a, enough in that first question that you just asked. There is room for unity within differing opinions. Now, how you parse that out? Look, this has to be 
an extremely prayerful, humble, studied thing. And and sometimes it like it's going to come down to conscience. I I I honestly I don't know about you guys. I can't. I don't think I can give like a perfect a a perfect um definition of this or a perfect breakdown of what all would be included or not included. See, I mean, there's a, what, there's a few things, but what you're getting at there is the big challenge of this. And I think it's why it scares people so much and why we are driven to move everything out of the realm of opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Of course we can, we can disagree on opinion. And the only things that matter are when you meet for worship on, you know, nine or nine 30 color of the wallpaper, color of the carpet. And, and because we push anything important, but you look at what Paul's dealing with here in Romans 14, it was important stuff in their culture, you know, the meats and the, and the vegetables and drinking and eating and, and all of the holidays, observance of different days, like religiously impactful matters, not the color of the carpet. And and so we need to learn from that. There needs to be things of substance that are left to opinion. The, these are not just that uh, it doesn't really matter. It's it's things of substance, but because there's subjectivity, we really don't like that. We're really uncomfortable when God says, here, it's up to you. They're like, oh, no, 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 no. You got to tell me, tell me. He says, no, you're allowed to choose here. Well, no, you have to like, because we at legalists heart, we all want the list. We all want the rich young ruler. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And when he says, well, think about this and choose what your conscience says that you should do. You go, well, hold on. You know, like we, we don't like using our conscience. We don't like we, we like taking the heart out of it all. And it's just a head thing. You get, you know, you learn, you, you get the list. And there is very much room for that. But you need the heart as well. And you need these things where that uh, because when I, when I talk about the subjectivity, if you look at verse 23, the implication of that of, of Romans 14, 23, he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. Whatever is not from faith is sin. What that just said is two different people can do the exact same thing. And for one of them, it's a sin. And for one of them, it's not right. That is yeah. a heavy concept that we don't like. We don't like right. that there's subjectivity. The one guy could be sinning and then the guy next to him doing the exact same thing isn't. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So again, you know, that's where we're headed. <laughs> we see that at the very end of this chapter, Paul is going to lay something like that on us. So let's let's parse through here, guys, and let's kind of just start with Romans 14. Um, I, the way I've outlined this out, I thought, if it's okay with you all, I'll just kind of read a chunk of verses and then we can kind of go through them, at least for the first half of the chapter. When it gets to the second half of the chapter, uh, I think we can maybe speak a little bit more generally, but I, th I think it's the first half where the rubber meets the road, at least on the practical application of this. And so let's start with verses one through four of Romans 14. <clears throat> Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let him, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. So as Paul jumps in here, and again, I, I know Daniel has done a ton of work in the book of Romans, and so no chapter lives outside of its context. Paul is is speaking to a, a real church here that is dealing with real issues. But again, without the time to necessarily go into all of that, as we as we jump into Romans 14 here, we jump into immediately uh, an imperative, right? Receive one who is weak 
in the faith. The first command is that you have a two brothers that are in different places, and <laughs> the command is receive this brother who's in a different place than you. Um, now, again, you have the personifications of the weak brother who's weak in the faith, uh, which would imply the brother who is strong in the faith or not weak in the faith. Uh, I'll just ask you guys, who do we always assume we are in the equation? You know, who, who are we we're, always? We're strong. We're strong. We're strong man. And, and, well, and it's, and the reason why, and, and I can prove this is because I eat steak. See, Paul, he, he, makes very clearly. He, he says the weak person eats only vegetables. This is my favorite verse to use whenever I meet a vegetarian or a vegan. You should be eating more meat. Uh, men, it's going to help you be more manly. So let me just get that right off. But I won't judge you. I'm not going to look down on you if you don't, because I'm told not to. Um, this I, this is important. And I, I think good sound teaching is going to work the weak brother over the course of his faith toward no longer being a weak brother. I don't, I don't think Paul is just saying, look, for the sake of, you know, illustration, we'll say there's a weak and a strong, there, there's literally a weakness that's here. And yeah. I think that the weakness comes out. If you look over at verse um, 15 is he says that there's a potential, there's a potential that, by this disagreement, this person's literally going to lose their faith. The work of God is going to be destroyed. If if you can be destroyed in your faith over the opinion or the liberty or the practice of another Christian, that's weakness. Now, you sh- there shouldn't there shouldn't be. And and here's the thing: there are church leaders today that if we're looking at how Paul defines a weak brother. We've got tons of preachers and elders and deacons and church leadership that are falling under this weak brother category. That shouldn't be. That that really shouldn't be. You shouldn't be in this position if your conscience is so weak that you can't see the ability for disagreement here. So, so I think when he's talking about a weak brother, he's saying this is a person's probably young in their faith. They're coming, they're coming out of paganism. Look, they're looking at the this brother over here who's eating food that he bought from the local um you know uh temple to apollo or or whatever and he says how could you possibly do that i mean his faith is really tender right now and he's young in the faith you have to be willing to receive him and work together there's no despising here but i i do think that there's a clear implication that that it's not going to remain and i think good teaching is going to move us beyond it or it ought to I think one of the other things is there it is possible to be the strong brother on one issue and the weak brother on another Yeah. Uh, as as you go through that. And in writing on COVID over the last few years, that was something where I, I use this distinction you know, of, of wearing a mask or, or whatever. The weak brother thinks I have to do this all the time. The strong brother knows I have liberty in this this area. And people got really mad. You're calling me weak. You know, like like it's an insult. It's a pejorative. No, this is somebody who has a very sensitive conscience. There's there's a positive thing behind it it's just they don't know what they're allowed to do yet and so they're being very careful and and when you see that in your kids this this thing where they might even restrict themselves like oh i'm not going to do that because i'm not supposed to and as the parent you say no it's okay you can you know but but you love to see that in their heart where they are self-regulating to say i'm not going to do that because i don't want to cross a line you go that's wonderful but let me help you understand that it's okay this time Mm -hmm. and the interesting thing about this chapter is paul is very much saying the stronger brother is right. 
He's still calling it a matter of opinion, but he's saying there's a right opinion here and it's what the stronger brother has. But until you, because we have weaker brothers, we've got to work around this. It's mm -hmm. not to bash the weaker brother on the head and say, eat the meat, you doofus. You know, like that's, <laughs> that's not what he's saying. He's saying it's good that you have your conscience in that place. So let's figure out how to work together stronger and weaker. Exactly. And, and I think, again, the one important thing here, just quickly, is to note that there is a real difference in conviction between two saved brothers at any given point. So as we say, there's a right opinion and there's a wrong opinion. The weaker brother, we hope to move towards strength. But there's a moment in time to where both the strong and the weak are saved yeah. in Christ, you know, right. with a difference of conviction. So that's the first answer to this question. Right. It, can there be difference of opinion and conviction within the walls of the saved saints? And Paul here emphatically says, yes, because right. these brothers both have, it's not just this guy knows something and this guy doesn't know it. They're thinking about God in opposite directions at this moment in time. Right. The hope and the prayer is that eventually we get them both moving and thinking in the same direction. But even when it's like this, there's an aspect to where salvation can still be because in, in the text here, it goes back to it. We don't stand on our own. That salvation isn't of us. It's God that's doing this, you know? Right. And so do we doubt his ability to make this weaker brother stand? Right. And you, you know, you, you get it said all the time that so long as whatever the disagreement is, doesn't affect us in practice, then it's okay. And it's acceptable, but as we were talking before the show and, and the other day in our uh, messaging group, it's it's clear that through this, this is actually working itself out in a different practice. So mm -hmm. it's it, it isn't the the basis of of this difference isn't just in the mind, right? Because because the things of the mind always work themselves out, and this is actually working itself out in a difference of practice. One person yeah. is is. Uh, um, eating the meat and one person isn't. One person's observing this day. One person isn't. One, one person's drinking wine. One person isn't. So it isn't It isn't limited to just, you know, it's up in this nebulous realm of ideas, but it's actually coming out and that there's a difference in how this, in the conduct of each of these people. And both of the conducts, he says, are acceptable. One eats to the Lord. One abstains from the Lord. This is an actual objective difference in practice. Yeah, and both of yeah. them are fine. I think that's an important um, uh, point to draw out. You're exactly right. And I think let, let's move on to verse five, because if we want to personify, so eating, we say, well, eating is something that God cares about, but that's not a Christian thing. Eating is something that everyone does. We do it every day. We've got opinions. As we move into verse five, you're exactly right. We move from some nebulous realm or, or things that we would say don't matter. Because a lot of times with the opinion stuff, we say, well, you can have different opinions on things that don't matter. But as we move into verse five, I think we're going to see that's not what's born out here. So starting in verse five, one person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God or gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and 
the living. So exactly as you said, Daniel, now we're moving out of this nebulous thought space of, well, one thinks it's okay to eat this, one thinks it's not okay just kind of this, you know, mental abstract component. Now mm-hmm. we're getting to what seems to be very much, and, and even the foods drawn back in is that no, no practice is outside of the realm of practice to the Lord. And so we move from difference in conviction to difference in convicted practice. I mean, we just see here, these two brothers are practicing different things. They're practicing practicing them as unto God, and they're falling on different sides here. And again, this goes back to in our modern context, we have next to no category for this. We don't understand it. No, you're you're exactly right. I I think that we we think, we, we, we would like to think that every righteous action and every sinful action is just is like a lot. There's just this long exact list of what that would be. And what mm-hmm. Paul is saying is that there's actually a space in which there may be a sinful action that the precise same action for this person over here isn't sinful. And there may be a righteous action that so both of these guys, even though they're doing the exact opposite thing, eating or abstaining, it's actually righteous in the abstinence and it's righteous in the indulgence and both are righteous before God. This goes, this goes back to, you know, there's, so there is a category of sin and righteousness that goes actually into the conscience of the person. And we don't like that. We, we want to have an exact rule for everything. And it's clear that that's not the case. You go back to Romans 12, the appeal that's kind of leading off this whole section on which I think the whole remainder of the book of Romans is built is I, I appeal to you uh, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So there's this idea of, you know, this is all of Christ for all of life. Every bit of me, whatever I do, whatever I am, whatever I think, it's going to be to the Lord. If I eat, it is in gratitude and thanksgiving to the Lord for this absolutely delicious steak. If I don't eat, well, I'm missing out, but I'm doing it for the Lord. And um, so I, I don't know, Jack, do you want to add on to that or? Yeah, I mean, that is such an important phrase. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind, because this hits at another flawed thing that you hear a lot is the Bible is just so simple. Anybody can you know read it. Anybody. There are ways in which it's simple. Jesus is Lord. Jesus rose from the grave. That's very simple. There are some things that are some things aren't. Some things require wrestling. Some things are, again, Paul is not coming in going, hey, weaker brothers, dummies. How did you not get this? It's, you know what? You need to be convinced in your own mind. If you think it's wrong, it's wrong. And and we've been, and rightly, I think, in some ways, very mocking towards the, the, you know, God knows my heart thing. You hear people say, God knows my heart. And they're usually saying that to justify all kinds of wrong behavior. Yeah, Yeah, they're sins. You know, well, God knows my heart. Yeah, I'm sinning on the outside, but inside I'm a good person. So I guess that's not how it works. This is what fruit means is it's coming out of you. But in this, it is God knows my heart. And and God knows, God's looking at the heart of, going to Daniel's point about 12.1, the person who's trying to be a living and holy sacrifice, and and they are doing something fully convinced, man, this is what God wants me to do, and and this is what I I think he wants me to do, and and best for my studies, this is my interpretation of this, and and so with all of my heart, and, and we've just got this thought sometimes of, 
man, somebody's going to come to that study and they're going to get it wrong and they're going to stand before God and say, now, God, you know, I sincerely, you know, lovingly, I devoted my whole life to you and, and on this thing and, and I, you know, didn't eat the meat or, or what I, I observed the wrong holiday or whatever it needs to go. Ooh, tough, tough break, man. It's going to be a, a long eternity, but, you know, nice try. <laughs> What he's yeah. saying here about God and you're doing it to the Lord, living for the Lord, dying for the Lord, everything that you do, there is a God knows my heart about certain things. Now, you can't go out and commit adultery and say God knows my heart, right. but you can misinterpret certain things along the lines here and say, and God's going to look at it and go, they chose that because they thought it was pleasing to me from the best of their study. And there's value in that. And again, that's a very uncomfortable thing, but it's a reality. Well, this is, this is jumping ahead a little bit, but um, it, it just fits right in line with what you're saying. There are matters God has legislated that he's, he's clearly said, this is wrong. So to your point, you know, the person who's, who's like living in a, in an openly gay relationship and they're saying, well, God knows my heart. Uh, he knows that I love him or whatever. It's like, no, the, the, the Bible says that's a sin that that's an egregious activity. You cannot do that. It's perverse. It's the judgment of God. Romans one, there are some things God has clearly legislated and, there are other things that God has not legislated. We we would like to we would like to be perpetual um, infants for whom there is a rule for everything, and there's little locks on the cabinet, and and we we just are treated like babies forever. But there is actually this realm of the spirit that God expects that we grow up into and that we operate within, and we understand there's no legislation in this area. Look, and I'm down in so I said I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but. In verse 17, he says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. That, so God God did not put a parameter on this, right? It doesn't mean that God says in every situation, you can eat whatever you want. There's obviously parameters within that. Should you be a glutton? No. Should you eat by stealing? No. There's There's some guidelines within it, but generally speaking, God hasn't legislated what you can eat and drink. It's, yeah. it's open for you. You, you can have this and, uh, we have to be honest enough with the text that that's literally what he's saying. God did not legislate it. Brothers yeah. and sisters that are listening, there are things God didn't legislate and therefore you can't legislate it. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you know, what, what it goes back to again, and what I hear so often that I want to kind of drive home one more time is, you know, when you get to this text of one esteems one day over the other, I've heard people bless their hearts, dear brothers, you know, that basically say one guy likes Tuesdays, another guy doesn't like Tuesdays. And you know, one guy likes Thursdays as if this is just, again, some without any bite, without any, you know, real life application. We're talking about people that view a certain day as important in a spiritual sense, right? But what I've noted so much, and we're going to talk about holidays in a minute, so so hold on if you want to get mad. But, you know, when we think about this, what it ultimately becomes is I've heard people say kind of like, well, I, look, I celebrate Christmas, Christmas, but I do it in a secular sense. And there's kind of this thought that a lot of things like we can, we have this Christian box of our life and we have this secular life and we build a wall in between them because we're afraid that our secular stuff is going to infect the Christianity. When of course, whole idea of this podcast, break down that wall and let your Christianity infect every single last inch of your life. There is no secular life because this text says, if we live, we live to God. If we eat, we eat. 
to God. If we if we observe a day, we observe it to God. So stop, you know, please. And if I sound like I'm I'm getting up on a pulpit here, stop imagining that you have this secular life. Now, again, yes, when I watch a football game, uh, do I do that in a worshipful religious sense? And hey, my Sundays on the golf course or that those are no, I'm not saying that. But I think there's a still an understanding where we go mm-hmm. every second of breath, you know, that I live. I live in witness to and to the glory of God, no matter what I'm doing. And so making this false dichotomy of these compartments of your life in an attempt to say, well, I'm good. I'm not sinning because Jesus is not involved with this. You know, it's just a foolish thing. Well, brother, one one of the things, I'm 100% agreement. One thing that I want to bring out is, is, is the words of a very wise man. He one time told me, he said, look, it's okay to celebrate the birth of Jesus any Sunday out of the year, except for Christmas. And so long as we're <laughs> on that page, it's okay to celebrate the resurrection of Christ on any Sunday, except for Easter, because we have to be holy. We have to be set apart. We have to be different. You start thinking, you start looking into that. We've now made a rule. We've now legislated in the exact reverse, only it doesn't make any sense because we've taken something that is generally religious. And we've said, no, you can't do that. Uh, well, you're, I, I, do we want to, do we kind of want to get into this a little bit? Because I, your, your point about everything we do should be to the Lord. Like if you're going to celebrate Christmas, do it to the Lord. If, if well, you're going to celebrate Easter, don't just do the eggs, right? What is that, that for just a minute? Uh, okay. cause it, that is where we want to end ahead. up here. Uh, get to 10 through 13, uh, because, these these help us draw the lines of, of who does what and and the stakes of all this and, and everything before we get into the practical. Yeah, sounds good. All right, let's start I with forgot, verse 10. I forgot we didn't. Sorry, I'm chomping no, at the bit. My mind ready. has been there the whole time. He's ready. All right. But why do you judge your brother or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account to him of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. So now we're getting into, again, this practical application of, of not exact rules, but about a standard here of what is your heart tuned to? You know, what what is your intent as you live this life to God? So, you know, Jack, what, what do you think as we as we reach this part of the chapter and he says, Hey, here's our standards for judging, here's what we're not going to do. What what's the ultimate goal here? It is unity, it's glorifying God, and it's it's figuring out how to live together and allow each other to be different. And I think what has happened is one side of this gets this preached to them and hammered it into their head and the other side doesn't because there's there's two commands here notice what he says uh holding con- your brother in contempt and then judging your brother it is the stronger brother who knows he has liberty who looks at his his weaker brother and and has contempt for him and looks and says why why does this guy this way why do i have to accommodate him why do i have to worry about him stumbling just get catch up buddy like this you're allowed to do this and the weaker brother looks and judges and says, I can't believe he would do that. And okay, so we're a little bit removed from it now. So I'm going to use this as the practical example before we get into some more timeless ones, masks and, and the shots and, and attendance and everything over COVID, right? Uh, it's a little less spicy than it was a couple of years ago. The weaker brother is the one that says you have to wear a mask all the time. 
stronger brother is the one that says I have liberty in this matter. I don't have to wear one around everybody. We made it to where everybody at all times, whatever the the weakest, most safety conscious person in the church, whatever their level of comfort was, everybody had to bend to that. So we don't right. be a stumbling block to them. But nobody came to them and said, you stop judging your brother. This is not okay for you to say somebody's a grandma killer or they don't love their neighbor if they won't go get a shot in their arm or or whatever it is. And so you end up with this. And, and this was a term coined by Sproul. It, it is incredibly useful. Mm-hmm. The tyranny of the weaker brother. Yeah. And that is everybody at all. And this goes back to the matriarchy thing, actually, to to cross episodes here is it's a safetyism. It's the the, you know, just catering always to the most sensitive person in the room and telling everybody else, hey, whatever they want, everybody has to get on their level. Everybody has to act the way they want. There's no point at which they're they're told you stop judging. And so I want to throw a thought experiment out before I pass this over, because I just had this conversation with some people and they just couldn't get. Why wouldn't somebody I would never do that. Why would it? Why would anybody want to go do X, Y, Z? That means you're the weaker brother in this situation. Put yourself through this and think, what is an area in which I allow somebody to go farther than I, I would, in which I don't judge somebody for doing it differently than I would do? Yeah. If you can't come up with any, you don't get what Romans 14 is saying. Right. On the other hand, the thing of, you know, uh, to use the mask thing, the people go, I'm never going to wear a mask around anybody. You can't make me and it's your fault. You, you stupid sheep or whatever, all that, that stuff. No, if, if you don't have anything in which you are bending yourself to a brother's consciousness, you're wrong too. There are two sides of this coin. Right. And one one of the other things that you see here that's really central to the discussion between 10, between verse, verses 10 and 12 or 10 and 13. And it's it's what's informed kind of what I was saying at the beginning of the episode where like look, I don't have this perfectly parsed out, but I I I I sense that I need to have some measure of grace and that and humility and no, I'm not I'm not going to be the one that's that's judging. It's literally what Paul's point is. I mean, look, he says, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So he says, you don't get to despise and you don't get to condemn. And I'm glad you made that connection back to verse three, where he says the one who, you know, there's the one who despises. That's that's the one who's looking down on the one who's abstaining. And then there's the one who judges. That's the one who's uh, who is abstaining and he's judging the one who's, e- who's eating. Um, but so I'm glad you made that connection because that's exactly what he says. And he says, you don't have that room. You don't get to do that because we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. There, There's, for whatever reason, there's this over-policing tendency where we think that we need to settle absolutely everything about absolutely every Christian. And we and and by so doing, we're putting ourselves into the judgment seat. We're not the judge. Like in either direction. We're we are standing before God. Now, if somebody's clearly disobeying legislated express words, well, that's where you you get into you know church discipline and and there's all kinds of stuff about that. But if it's not been, you know, there's no place for judgment. And and I think that there's some certain things we take for granted and we assume that they're just so crystal clear. And uh, it may be more so that our tradition has informed us rather than than, you know, precise exegesis. 
Yeah, you're right. One, one thing in this chapter that jumps out to me so much is that a lot of times we end up asking the who's my neighbor question. Throughout this chapter, Paul says, look, there's this brother, there's this servant of the Lord with whom you disagree. You know, don't despise him again. The, you know, but basically, the question we want to ask is, well, who's the Lord's servant? Who's my brother? Like, you know, if that guy disagrees with me on one thing, I have this deep suspicion that he's not really a brother to begin with. And again, we have to do that. We have to be fruit inspectors. We have to look. But when it becomes, if you're not exactly like me, you're not in the fold, then this, the logic of this chapter falls to pieces, right? Because what he's saying is you have a brother who is in truth, God's servant there. Are you willing to destroy him over this? You know, even though you have a difference of opinion. And so again, I just want people to see that is assumed in the text. And without that understanding of it, the whole thing falls apart. Now, again, on the other side, as, as we, you know, close out this section, again, it goes to, we we resolve, we're not going to put stumbling blocks in front of people. So again, from the standpoint of the stronger brother, if that's your standpoint, as Jack was mentioning, it's never the hammer of, you know, well, if you just see it this way, bang, 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 you know, and I'm going to show you. And then, you know, I, I think we should properly define fall or stumble, you know, because again, sometimes we take that to mean offend, you know, I'm going to offend offend my brother or they're going to think, well, I don't, you know, I don't know about that. I wouldn't want to do that. I wouldn't purposefully do that. But do you guys think that the word fall in this case goes beyond just a light offense or a moment of going, huh, I don't know about that. I mean, what, what's being talked about here? Well, cause he comes back around to destroy yeah. you. You might Absolutely. destroy your brother by what you do. And so the stakes, the consequences are, are very high. If right. you, you, put their whole faith in turmoil. If, if you really make them start questioning everything and, and it kind of falls apart and it's this understanding that man, not every Christian is ready for every conversation and that's okay, but uh, it is a serious thing. And that's why this has to be treated so carefully, but they also need to be encouraged that, Hey, I'm not telling you, you have to believe what I believe, but also in your weakness, let's, let's get you to where you've got a little bit more grace for somebody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I every think every you know, I was that, going to say every conversation we have in this podcast, I not every Christian is ready for every one of these conversations, you know, and and you have to kind of judge and parse that out and go where are people at in their walk, right? Well, and and but but at the same time, the truth needs to be said, and and so mm-hmm. you know it's interesting, like Paul's Paul's writing this to these people, and he's telling them the general truth that you're not, you know, if you if you do indulge, you you are at liberty to do so. And he's he's saying to the other, he's saying you you know you also if your conscience is forbidding you, you should avoid it. But he does make clear, as Jack pointed out a little bit ago, that the one who is not abstaining or the one who is enjoying this, it, that's the right opinion, and that they that they have that liberty to do so. Conversation uh, needs to be had, and. I think where it, you know, right now we're just speaking in general terms when we're dealing with real people, like on the church level, you know, if I know, say, say that there's a, um, a Muslim that converts to Christ, has never eaten, you know, bacon or uh, sausage in, in his entire life. He's now, he's now in Jesus Christ. I'm not, you know, if I'm going to have that guy over for dinner. I'm not going to serve up pork and we would probably do everything we could as a church to give him options and to 
um, ensure that whenever there was a meal or a fellowship, that there was something that he could eat. Or if if this was going to be something, you know, go, go so far as to cause him to really have an issue, then maybe we would avoid it altogether. When, you, when you're down on the personal level and you're dealing with real people, there's going to be compassion involved. When we're speaking in terms of the general truths here, there has to be boldness and plainness to yeah. say, you know, if you're judging one way or the other, it, you're just flatly wrong. And this this scripture is calling that out. I think one other note before we move on to the the modern practical examples is if you went through this chapter and highlighted the verses speaking to the stronger brother in blue and the verses speaking to the weaker brother in red, it'd be a lot more blue than it would be red. There is a higher responsibility for the brother with liberty, with the stronger conscience, uh, because they are more mature. And, And so they are the one who needs to do a better job of taking into account their brother. Now, there still is that if you're the weaker brother, you can't judge, you can't make everybody live by your standard. But man, you look at from 13 on, I mean, he's essentially going on at the stronger and saying, don't make them stumble. Don't make them fall. Don't don't get them into this situation. And so I do believe they have more responsibility here to not Mm -hmm. exactly what Daniel's saying, not put something in front of them that might be a problem. Uh, But that does not, you know, just dissolve all of the responsibility uh, on the other side of the equation either. And so uh, with that, let's uh, let's let's do the modern examples uh, that Daniel was was getting at a minute ago, uh, and so we'll get into uh, there. There are a number, uh, and so you guys would pick one, pick one or two you want to talk about, and jump in there. Let's see what we got. Before before we get, we have some down on the outline. I want to get to them. I, I want to talk about one just briefly that we don't have time to really tackle. But one that I think is maybe in my area and my life, one of the most noted, because we don't really have time to tackle whole frameworks of, of different opinion here. One of which comes down, there is a huge split and, and some people know and some people don't between what would be called the institutional and the non-institutional churches of Christ. I have dear friends who I count brothers uh, in in real life personally who hold to non-institutional mindsets on certain things. And this is something that affects congregations in my area. People come in out of these different frameworks and and it becomes a real challenge. And so I just want to say that this is not some phantom question of, well, maybe somebody somewhere could have differences of opinions. We have people that uh, again, are are largely in line with mindset with us on 99% of things that we are divided with in some sense mm-hmm. out of differences of opinion. And again, we don't have time to parse through all of that. That's a whole topic of its own and one that has given me heartache over the years. But but again, you know, what what are some, Daniel, as we move realizing that yes, these differences of opinion are real. Yes, they really do divide on a large scale. What are some examples that maybe hit really close to home within our circles? You know, we're talking about our brothers in the church of Christ as we're, you know, living and bearing with one another. What are some modern examples that really kind of cause friction? You know what? One that um, that I think is especially difficult and and uh, we've not done an episode yet on, on eschatology, have we? We we've danced around it, hinted at we, it a million times. We have we, not we gotten talk, the courage we to do it. We mentioned it in passing. We kind of have. But um, I. I this is one that I uh, that I think that I think is huge, and and right now is we're seeing 
there there are dividing lines that are being drawn on on the basis of um, one's eschatology. You know, for those for those that are listening, we're just talking about our conception of the um, the end times. What's it going to be like? What's the new heavens and new earth? What's that all about? What's the coming of Jesus going to be like? When's he going to come? Under what kind of a uh, um, terms is he going to come? Is he going to come back in a world that's totally fallen with a little straggling remnant? Or is he going to come back to a world that's been overwhelmingly seeded by Christianity? You know, these kinds of ideas. That's what we're talking about with eschatology. This is this is an area where I've I've seen very hard lines drawn and very clear. We're not in fellowship with you. We are in fellowship with you. And it's on the basis of this. And one of the one of the problems with that is no matter which way you slice your eschatology view, you're going to have problems even within your own view. If any of us are honest about eschatology, it isn't easy to slice and dice. It's tough. Like I can see three or four different scatological perspectives and say, yeah, kind of see, I kind of see where that person's coming from. I can kind of see how this scripture lends to this or this scripture lends to this. And again, this comes, this comes back to me is this is one of those areas that I, it's not so clear that you can just come to the scripture and, you know, there's just some, you know, inexcusable, obvious answer to it. It's difficult. It's inherently difficult and as I've said a few times throughout this episode, that's an area where there has to be humility and there also has to be grace. I have, I may have a brother across the aisle who has a different perspective of, you know, the end times. Uh, I understand that that's going to bear out a little bit in how we, you know, go about our Christianity, whether positively or kind of retracting. Or So, so there is some basis of it in real practice, but um, that's an area where I I truly think we've been wrong to uh to to divide, to despise, to condemn, to judge. No. I think Thank there's you. with this the the you start talking about this and in the immediately sets off in some people's minds, but they're wrong. But they're wrong, but they they're wrong about this. Read the chapter again. He's saying let people be wrong. It's okay to be wrong sometimes that yeah. that what is more important than you making sure they are right or kicking them out is you accepting them even in their wrongness. And and that tells you that this idea that we have that getting into heaven is about being able to walk up to the judgment seat of God and reciting all of the doctrines and showing, see, I got it right. I, I get a 100 on the test, so I get to go in. It's not how it works. There are more things to play here. That doesn't mean it's not important to be right about doctrine. But there have to be times in which you can be wrong. And I gave that assignment earlier. Do the homework and figure out where do you let somebody have a different view than you? Even ask this, what do I let people be wrong about and say it's okay? There needs to be some things in your life like that. And so we also have on our list the, the holidays thing, Christmas and Easter you brought up earlier. Man, that that is a hot fired issue for certain people. And I don't care either way. I grew up not celebrating it as such. I've been around people who do. I you know, it really is. It's and, and it's so funny, as Titus mentioned, we say, oh, it's a Tuesday. It's a Saturday. It's no, it literally is religious holidays. You had Jews coming who wanted to hang on to Passover and Pentecost or, or whatever their, their favorite feast day was. You had Gentiles coming in who had their own traditions yeah. and things like that. And that was a hard meshing that we're dealing with. And so with this and, and man, the first thing somebody's going to do is, well, we weren't commanded. And here's this verse that says this and this. Verse. That's not the point. <laughs> That's again, right. it's not about is somebody right or wrong. And and right. we have to get off of that mindset that goes what's right or wrong and get on to 
has God allowed somebody to be wrong on this? And we have to realize how how this the holiday issue is one that that honestly it drives me nuts. The fact that every time Christmas rolls around or Easter rolls around, brothers are writing articles about this or that or one perspective over the other. I prefer not to say anything about it on social media because before the broader world, they're looking at the Lord's people arguing about whether it's okay to celebrate the birth of Jesus corporately. And they're, they're, that, that honestly looks insane. That's, that's very, very discrediting to the faith that we're trying to promote before the world. And, and to, to the broader world, I understand that we have our contentions within the brotherhood and we've got our perspectives that are very deeply run to the broader world. That makes absolutely no sense. And so some of these fights that we've chosen to have, we have to realize that, you know, Jesus in John 17, you mentioned his prayer He said, let them have unity, which is not necessarily based on everyone having the same opinion. It's differing opinions at times. Let them have unity so the world may believe. The implication is that if there's a lack of unity, the world won't believe. And I think that this is precisely one of those issues that that people will look on it and say, eh, I don't think I ever want to be a part of that group. Now, I'm not saying that we should go one way or the other and and have some big celebration or whatever, but we've, we've got to stop dying on these hills if if somebody's going to celebrate you know in my family every you know on christmas the night before christmas we read through uh luke's account and we do we tell our kids look we're remembering the birth of jesus and this is what we do in our family we've got a little nativity set up in our house and you know so i just got uh, how many how many uh, potential liberal heretic now did did i just get did i just get completely (laughs) kicked off of but you know we do we and because and and i'll tell you why any anytime you know this rolls around people say we don't celebrate the birth of jesus once a year we celebrate it every day and and i just want to stop and say no you don't no you don't no you know you you don't like seriously do you stop and think about it no there it's we rarely think about it. We actually rarely talk about it. And having once a year to remember the occasion of the incarnate, the incarnation of, of the Christ, to me, that's a special thing. And that's that's my mind. And, and I have no judgment for anybody that doesn't go that direction. But it, it is it is special for me. And it, it's something that we've uh, brought into our family. And uh, go ahead, Titus. No, I was just say, just take it one further, because again, I, I think we can't argue, as I would with you, the importance of the incarnation. While in the New Testament, especially, you know, as we go on with Christ's life, it's his death, burial, and resurrection that gets kind of the 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 most focus. But I hear the same thing about Easter. You know, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ every Sunday. No, you don't. You, no, you don't, don't talk about every Sunday. You don't right. think about it every Sunday. And I just there's a couple things that come to mind. One that you said is again, what hills do we die on? A lot of stuff with this and the the phrase kept coming to my mind as I was outlining this all week, blood on every hilltop, right? There will be blood on every hilltop if I have my way. I will kill each and every person on every opinion. And and one thing that comes to this, I think of again, maybe in the church at Rome, uh, uh, a Sunday, this Gentile comes in and he sees his Jewish brother and he's a little misty eyed. And he says, man, today just kind of hits different for me. It's, It's the day of Pentecost, you know, Calendar wise, this is the day of Pentecost. And I know that on the day of Pentecost, it was that the first gospel sermon was preached and, and the doors of the church were, and the Gentile brother says, we celebrate Pentecost every Sunday, my Jewish brother, right? How dare right. you remember this historical occurrence? And again, I, I go back to when it comes to the holiday thing. I'm 
I've not celebrated it religiously in my family. That's not the way I was brought up. But as I think about it, when you start talking about this, people are like, well, you want to bring in the Christmas pageant. You want to bring in the Christmas candles on Sunday morning service. And I'm not a proponent of that. But just simply acknowledging it, you know, acknowledging what everybody else in the world is thinking on this day, why would you would you not do it? And I, and I go back to, again, in my head, I remember I referenced this a while back with you guys. We we say, well, we know Jesus wasn't born. We we, we It would be wrong to have a substitute day or, or, or people have all this false peddling of, well, Christmas was this pagan holiday and you're really worshiping. Right. And right. I say, yeah, and you have a prom alternative, right? You have right. this Christian <laughs> prom alternative that happens on the same night as prom, where now you're right. dedicating it for God's people and celebrating it in that way. And nobody bats an eyelash, right? Because right. they understand in a practical sense, it's okay for Christians to take this and to claim it for Jesus and the celebration right. of Jesus and the celebration of his people. Well, and so, yeah. And and even to say that, like, I, I don't, I just don't buy into the framework that Christmas is a, is, is a sec is a secular or his, historically secular holiday. Um, there's, there's a, a lot of evidence that Christians from super early were celebrating the birth of Jesus around this time. And that this was something that was not a, you know, it wasn't like when they took a pagan holiday and made it some religious holiday or whatever and redeemed it in that way, but that it was, it was actually originally a Christian holiday. It was something Christians were, were resolving to do. We won't get into all that, but I, I, I do think that there's a basis for saying, look, it wasn't originally secular. So, it, so we can't just call it just a secular holiday. I want to get to one more thing before we're finished. I know we're, we're probably getting close to running out of time, but specifically re relating to food and drink specifically related to the latter, specifically related to wine. This is one that I think is probably one of the biggest points of contention. And for, for those that are listening, you know, there, um, uh, Focus Press put has more than one podcast. So recently there was another podcast that was done specifically on the issue of beverage alcohol or wine or whatever. And this issue, just speaking, if you, if you listened to the episode, it was a great episode. It was super balanced. There was a, uh, a, you know, a presentation of the plurality of scriptures that speak about wine. The Bible is clear on this. We, there's no clear parsing on, well, in this instance, it was alcoholic. In this instance, it wasn't. It's the same words across the board. And uh, again, we're not going to get into all the particulars that they talked about. But this point, th this whole episode, you know, we're talking about how Depending on where you land, you're okay if you choose to be completely, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, a teetotaler, staying totally good. You know, you're you're following, you know, what what the pa the passages that speak about the wisdom here. But if you don't fall into that, and you know a brother who doesn't, this whole Romans 14 is saying you can't judge that person for that. And what's interesting to me is in this recent podcast that that was they were lambasted for for doing it. All the guys came out and said, look, we personally abstain. <laughs> we, we don't even partake in this, but we want to be honest enough with the text to say, this is what the Bible says. It, it says there is no room for judgment here. And Paul, you know, the interesting thing is Paul literally says the kingdom of heaven isn't a matter of eating and drinking. He, he calls this one out by name. And and in in a couple of verses later, he mentions wine. Why why would somebody be abstaining from wine? Well, because they had some conscience reason. Look, he's talking about this precise issue, and in my understanding is that this conversation that was had 
led to you know the, uh, some people being you, no longer being uh, able to speak at a camp, some person being off of some lectureship, you know, all kinds of you know being called out as a false teacher and whatever. And what I think has happened is we've allowed tradition to supersede the scripture, and it's become our basis of of judging. And yeah. we're, so we're seeing exactly what Paul's talking about play out, but we're not we're not submitting to what Romans fourteen is saying. And I, I want to piggyback off of that. And I, I know Jack's spoken to this a lot and spoken about it in since. And so we'll kind of maybe speak here and 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 just kind of stand in his corner and stand in the corner of Focus Press and say this. In our brotherhood, we throw out false teacher and false doctrine like it's candy on Halloween. Anybody that disagrees with uh, us on the, the harvest sl- festival, you mean? Oh, on the harvest festival, yes. Sorry. The harvest <laughs> festival, yeah. Um we call people that are in Christ, that are covered in the blood of Christ, that are walking in the light and fellowship with God, false yeah. teachers. And may God have mercy on our soul on the day of judgment when it comes to our time to be judged, when we call those in good standing with the Lord wolves mm-hmm. and false teachers. It shows a total lack of humility, shows a total lack of grace. And it shows an adherence to, to go back to a previous episode, an unwritten creed, an unwritten dogma that we are hoisting on people. And in turn, we are condemning them and we are saying, God will not make you stand in the end. And again, you know, as we come to the end of this episode, some of the things as we've talked, we've hit eschatology, we've hit holidays. Now we're hitting food and drink. I don't want to be manipulative with this, but I want the, the, the listener who's thinking who disagrees with us. Maybe you've listened to dozens of hours of content from this podcast, um, from Think Deeper. You know our convictions. You know where we stand. Yeah. And it's very likely that you may disagree with any number of the things that we just said. Are you prepared to condemn us to hell for a statement made on the celebration of Christmas, for a statement made on eschatology. Does that work out in your mind? Does that line up with your envisioning of salvation, with the grace of God, with personal humility? Again, I'm not trying to be manipulative. I'm not you know, trying to put you in an emotionally compromised position, but I'm just saying, think about this. Think about these yeah. things. The problem is that most of this conversation is off limits. We're not allowed to have this conversation. We're not allowed to think about these things. Um, and in the process, what happens is people either leave the church wholesale and they go elsewhere, um, or rather they cloister themselves up into these bulwarks of ideology to where, again, me and my wife are the only ones going to heaven and I'm starting to worry about her. It, it's just uh, antithetical to what it means to be a Christian. It's antithetical to the grace of God. Uh, and I pray for God's grace in my life where I've committed the same sin, where I've um despised people where I've judged people um, that I hope in my heart that God will forgive me for my lack of grace and understanding and humility. Absolutely. I mean, it is kind of a tyranny of the weaker brother thing. Uh, I've, I've said my, my piece on this for sure uh, via podcast, via churchreset.substack.com. If anyone wants to read on all this, but um, I want to say one last thing is that there is such a hermeneutic of fear here and why this is so why Christmas and Easter, why alcohol, why eschatology, why whatever else are so volatile, why people are so keyed in on these things is this idea that if I get one thing wrong, I'm going to hell. 
and I'm right. taking people with me if, if I'm wrong and they're wrong because I'm wrong. And uh, once again, when you say something like that, immediately people go to, oh, so it doesn't matter to be right. No. What Romans 14 tells us is sometimes wrong people are pleasing to God because of where their heart is, because of their their conscience. And when they're looking at things and, and saying this is to the best of my knowledge, and I'm going to keep studying it. But as of right now, this is how I understand it. This is how I'm going to apply it. You have to let people be wrong. You have to realize that wrongness is not condemning them to hell. You have to realize that there are times in the Christian life where holding unity means letting somebody be wrong. Yeah, that, that, that is a hard truth to hold on to, but you have to. And, and that's what all of this comes back to is, and Titus made the point beautifully earlier, we don't want to unite with anybody we shouldn't. But we also we're always scared of that. We got to be really scared of cutting out somebody we should unite with. And right. and that should be a very driving principle to take away from Romans 14. Any last yeah. thoughts? Yeah, one lot one last thought. The, keeping this in the context of Romans, which again, this has been where my mind has been for the past couple of years. In the the point of Romans is to say to every person, Jew and Gentile, there's not a single one who's just in the eyes of God. In fact, Every one of you is not only not just, but you're very unjust. He said, altogether, we've become worthless. Everybody's a sinner. And our justification in Jesus Christ, according to the end of Romans 3, is by faith, not as a result of works. And he's, in fact, he says, your works were shut out of the room when the justification was happening. So God, Romans is saying, despite your works, you're being justified before God. And, and and this is this is despite your actual sins. In Romans 14, he's not even talking about sin anymore. He's talking about matters of liberty. We will shut a brother out on the basis of them not adhering to our opinion. God has welcomed us in despite the fact that we have sin. Do we see the problem here? We're shutting out over opinion. God has brought us in with, with, our, with our sin. Of course, he's sanctifying us. But... Uh, we, we cannot, the, the whole point, this whole, this whole conversation, all of Romans 14 is coming out of a conversation that says, look, none of you, no matter, no matter how good you are is truly good before the living God. And so for me, it's going to come back hugely as we've said all through this episode to, we have to have grace. We, we just have to have um, a, you know, an outlook of grace and a desire for our brother, pray for them, love them, have compassion on them, speak the truth to them, but uh, welcome them as we have been welcomed by Christ. Absolutely. Amen. Amen. All right. We'll wrap right there. As always, we'll be Lord willing back next week uh, on who let the dogma out. As always, we make the request, make sure you're following us on Facebook. The, uh, the quotes go out. We're starting to do, of course, the short clips, uh, if you see one you like, you agree with, that is the best way to get the word out about the show. Somebody sees that and goes, hey, what, what's this all about? I'll check that out. So uh, please be free. Please feel free and, and be sure to like and share those. And we'll talk to you guys next week.